Sex Communication, a podcast of explicit audio and frank conversation. How do we talk about sex? How do we communicate during sex? Well, if you're here now, then you're going to find out. My name is Brianne McGuire, and each week I share an uncensored peek into the things we don't discuss. Sex. 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 I can't say the word sex. Sexy, sexy, sex stuff. Sex. Hello and welcome to episode 108. Today's show is all about sexual assault. Uh, It turns out that April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which is a fact that I either never knew or knew and then forgot. Not sure. But um, it's pretty funny considering last week I published an interview with a licensed clinical social worker who focuses on sexual assault awareness. Um, But anyway, I just thought I'd take this opportunity to share... Some of my personal experiences, I have had almost half a dozen different experiences with sexual assault in various forms. Um, So what I'm going to do today is read you two essays detailing some of them, not all of them. I will be linking to both pieces in the episode notes. I will also be linking to a third piece on consent and being bullied, um, kind of talking about another experience that I I have had in the last two years. But um, for today's show, I'm going to share with you a piece that I wrote about including my rapist on my list of sexual partners, and then another piece about stealthing. I'm going to read you these two essays versus describe them to you off the cuff, because I think that there's something more thorough about the written form. You know, there's something more detailed and, um, you know, more reflective of taking the time to write something out versus just trying to recount something to you casually and on the fly and, you know, hope that I remember details and hope that I remember to tell you like how this felt or this happened or, or whatever. Um, but I, I know from rereading these things that I did really capture the discomfort and the detail and the, situation as a whole in these accounts. So that's why I'm sharing them to you in this way. Um, Yeah, so let's just get to it. Here we go. Rapist versus partner, indexing a sexual history. My rapist is number 33 on my list of sexual partners and differentiated with a tilde before his entry. He is listed as Hansy, which is what I dubbed him upon our introduction. The foreshadowing of that nickname still makes me sick. I no longer remember his name. Hansy appears just past the middle of the list, after 32 other encounters I remembered immediately and could rattle off with ease. His appearance marked a pause. I had debated with myself for some time before ultimately including him and then moving on to the remaining names. The inclusion of my rapist on my list of sexual partners wasn't pleasant or immediate, but it did feel necessary. For me, the list is more technical than romantic i.e. these are the people who have been inside my vagina. The list was never anything other than a practical document, something maintained electronically for easy access and tabulation, and only begun upon realizing I was approaching a point where I might no longer easily recall the specifics or circumstances of those involved in my escapades. The distinction of penetration meant that I did not include the man who molested me as a child, nor the former friend who masturbated over me while I was incapacitated on pills and booze after my high school graduation. Since deciding to write about this topic, it has become apparent that my approach to sexual indexing is not exactly common, and certainly not popular. 
I brought it up with a girlfriend who had also been raped, and at first she replied, Yeah, I've included my rapists. But that quickly shifted to the distinction that they go on a different list, not to be mixed with one of sexual partners, adding, They don't deserve that. While I agree that sexual assaulters do not warrant the same classification as those with whom I've engaged consensually, it seems unnecessarily disorganized and somewhat irrational to create multiple lists. Ever curious to know what the internet had to say, I searched for including your rapist on a list of sexual partners and turned up just one relevant hit, a post dated January of 2013 and published on the site Jezebel, exploring why people keep fuck lists. The matter of sex without consent was addressed briefly. This is a quote. One of the most sensitive issues around numbers and lists involves how or whether to integrate non-consensual sexual experiences onto a list. Several women mentioned that they deliberately left those incidents out of their archives, while others made a separate category. I have two assholes on their own rapist list, one woman wrote. I won't include them with everyone else, but I can't forget them either. Another put rapist in parentheses after a name, which she nonetheless included in sequential order on her spreadsheet. End quote. The article was written by Hugo Schweitzer, a former Jezebel contributor. The scant results from cyber research prompted my turning to a male friend next. He had strong opinions in opposition to my decision. His position also centered around the word partner and its implications of permission. Of course, I could see his point, given the strict definition of the word, but I felt his position diminished reality to a question of semantics ignorance of the complexities and far-reaching impact of any actions taken on the matter. After all, as a straight male who had never been penetrated as a means of intercourse or assault, he had no basis of experience on which to base his conclusions. I probably should have asked a man who at least had first-hand knowledge of having one's body explored by a penis. Whether I use a different word in a title for my list or not, the fact is that my rapist physically entered my body, as did every other person I willingly engaged in intercourse. That detail alone makes his inclusion logical. The act of counting this man's name, or rather his description, among my sexual partners doesn't excuse the crime in any way, but it does normalize the experience to something I can emotionally manage. My decision allows me to gain some modicum of leverage against my abuser. If I were to allow the pain and discomfort that comes from recalling that night to keep me from acknowledging or discussing my experience, then I would remain forever the victim. To be silent, to ignore the facts, to forget, would only keep me weak, forever burdened by someone else's actions rather than my own. Rape is one of those subjects many prefer not to discuss. Thanks to the infamous Me Too movement, plenty of people now feel empowered to admit to the occurrence of sexual assault, but not much has changed in terms of speaking about the events, specifically the act of rape. People may be more willing to know that such experiences have occurred, perhaps even an account of harassment, but they still don't want to know the details. After my rape, I woke up in a basement, fully clothed on top but naked from the waist down. I was groggy, my eyes dry and unable to focus. My rapist attempted to press a pill into my mouth as I struggled to ask where I was and what had happened. The assault occurred on the second day of a weekend-long house party hosted by a friend. My rapist was a close companion of the host and a child psychiatrist. When I share these details out loud in mixed company, the responses range from visible discomfort to the occasional hushed and timid admission of identification. The distress manages to serve as a subtle shaming for daring to speak of such things, as though the subject was meant only for therapists, members of the medical and legal community, perhaps a diary. Often it's suggested I save such sharing for strictly female company, which not only infers I should feel embarrassed, 
but also discounts the fact that sexual assault knows no boundaries of gender, race, or status. The database site 538 presented a thorough report in January 2018 that breaks down the rates of sexual assault, the widespread impact on all peoples, and the dismal occurrence of reporting in a way that leaves no question as to the reach of the issue. Collective silence creates a sanctuary for perpetrators, fostering the notion that they may continue to act despicably without fear of recrimination. It gives abusers not only protection, but power as well, and what awful power it is. I know all too well what comes from staying silent. I did it for years. I am loath to admit it, but I never reported any of the incidents of abuse I suffered. Following each of my three assaults, I was so broken and crippled by worry over my perceived role in the events that I became paralyzed and mute. As a child, I held on to that first instance of sexual abuse until early adulthood, when I began confiding in romantic partners and close friends. I was abused by my next-door neighbor, a senior citizen who owned horses and had been friends for years with my stepfather. It wasn't until 2012 and newly sober that I shared the occurrence with any family member. My older brother, acting as my interim sponsor in a 12-step program, offered me the safety and comfort to be honest in a way I had never been with any other member of my family. When I was 17, a boy masturbated over me while I lay unconscious during a graduation party. I awoke to find him standing over me exposed and stroking himself as he pushed my clothes aside. I knocked his hands away the best I could in the state that I was in. Somehow I managed to yell enough for him to pull up his pants and back off. Afterward, I got myself together and told my boyfriend, who then collected some other friends and challenged the guy outside. He denied everything and the whole encounter fizzled out after some yelling and threatening. Soon after, it was forgotten and everything reverted to normal. I heard later that night another girl had accused him of the same thing earlier in the year. The rape happened in my early 30s, and again, I shared it with only a few people I trusted at the party. This time, the assailant was thrown out of the party after being physically confronted by the host. The party quickly broke up afterward. I still didn't go to the police. What I did do was continue to get high as the handful of people who remained shared what they had witnessed. Apparently, I had been all over Hansy. When we both disappeared, no one thought twice about the implications despite how clearly intoxicated I had been. The descriptions of my aggressive flirting were foreign and horrifying. Hansy had casually mentioned GHB earlier in the night, and I had lost a solid three to four hours of time to a blackness I'd never felt before. I started to realize I had probably been dosed. It's entirely possible I wasn't. I didn't go to a doctor or file charges, no rape kit was ever taken, but I know in my gut that something extra occurred. I also know that if I had somehow felt a change of heart towards Hansi and willingly engaged him in sex, then I would have for sure taken my top off to screw him. To find out that I had anything physical to do with that man turned my stomach. I found him creepy and repulsive from the beginning. I blamed my use of substances that weekend despite deep suspicions that I had been drugged, convinced that my account would be dismissed in court as coming from an addict and drunk who was asking for it and had it coming, I concluded there was no use in making a report or filing charges. I believed involving the law would only succeed in extending my pain indefinitely. The matter filtering from police to lawyers, making statements and being questioned, revisiting the humiliation over and over. I attempted to come to terms with what I had experienced and what I had been told in the months that followed. I obsessively relived it. I tried to own the event by imagining it from the eyes of a professional sex worker. I told myself things like, 
If I were in porn, this would be no big deal. It's just a physical transaction. Why do I need to be so emotionally affected by one night? I can't even remember it, so why hold on to it? I talked through multiple times with another doctor from the party. I attempted to use him as a substitute therapist. I drank and drank and drank and did more drugs than ever before. Unsurprisingly, I hit an even deeper bottom. My first attempt at sobriety came six months later. Now that I am in recovery and no longer stifling my feelings and memories with substances, I can face things with some clarity. Over the last six plus years, I've shared about my rape with others many, many times. I've done moral inventories on my part in the events of my past, not taking the blame but honestly examining how my fears and ego contributed to my silence and self-harm. I punished myself for years, sick with regret and shame for not standing up for myself, for allowing not one but three criminals to roam free without repercussion. I had always been able to excuse my reaction as a terrified and already home-abused child at the age of eight, but it has been much harder to forgive myself for doing nothing as an older teenager and later as a woman in her early 30s. In each of the latter instances, my use of illegal substances precluded doing the right thing. Fear of being blamed, discredited, or even charged for a crime myself held me silent and weak. I can never know how many others may have fallen victim at the hands of those same men as a result of never being held accountable for their actions. My list is an index of my sexual history, but also of my sexuality and sexual choices. It is also a call never to keep quiet again, a motivator to accept myself and my past, to let go of all the shame. Choosing to face those ugly parts whenever I review or add to my list helps keep things in perspective. It keeps me free. I wish it were more common for people to share the specifics of their sexual assault honestly. Hearing someone share about their rape might have inspired me to open up about my own sooner, perhaps even report it, but maybe not. It's so hard to say, given how tight-lipped we are as a culture when it comes to this topic. Can you even imagine what it might be like to live in a world where victims are not blamed or shamed? Holding a painful truth a secret seems like the easier way, but really it does nothing but perpetuate the very acts of which we choose not to speak. And if no one is willing to listen, how can there ever be sanctuary for a victim? Blame and shame happen any time someone is asked not to talk about an uncomfortable subject, any time experience is mocked or questioned, any time a person is disparaged for intoxication or the way they are dressed. But it doesn't have to be this way. If we cease burdening the abused with censorship, we might finally begin shifting the balance of power from the abuser to the abused. Ooh. It's always emotional rereading that. Uh, somehow more so reading it out loud. Um, even though these are <laughs> things that I have spoken about out loud before, but um, I don't know. It's somehow different every time. An interesting side note to this event. Um, so, I mean, obviously, there. Well, I don't know if it's obvious, but the rape has been one of the things that has hit me the hardest in terms of the sexual assaults that I've experienced throughout my life. Um, you know, and I, I really, just the fact that he was a child psychiatrist too, it just, oh man, it really, really was like rotting in my soul, this, you know, knowledge that I didn't say anything. But, um, you know, I had attended the party with friends. It was hosted by a friend. Um, and of that group of people, I'm still in contact with one of them. 
Um, it's not that I'm not friends with the others. It's just that we've fallen out of touch and certainly, you know, that event was comfortable, uncomfortable for everyone. And I really, you know, turned a lot of people off with my drinking and drug use. Um, but anyway, the, the point is that I had the courage a couple months ago to, to ask this one person that I'd remained in contact with, you know, like what happened? And I was sharing that, um, you know, I still had this lingering disgust about not saying anything to any kind of legal authority. And, you know, this fear that he was the attacker was, was doing this to other people. And it turns out that probably as a result of being, you know, physically thrown out of the party by the host, who was a friend of his, apparently he has had a bottom of his own and is actually in recovery of sorts, perhaps also sober. The details are a little unclear, but, um, that seems to be, I mean, this is going, this is like a game of telephone, like one friend telling this friend, telling that friend and nobody living in the same area. So, uh, no way of like actually corroborating it. And, you know, neither of us know his name, but, um, I hope that that's true. Um, I mean, at least I did say something at the party. I did do that instead of just holding on to it and not saying anything at all. Um, it's not the same as reporting it, but but hearing that that may have resulted in him ha facing himself in a similar way that I have in sobriety um, is somewhat of a, a silver lining of sorts. Um, anyway, so that's my account of being raped and <laughs> the dilemma of how does one keep an accurate, um, fuck list, if you will, when such things have happened to you. So anyway, that is my take. On to the next thing. This next essay is called, I hate this, stealthing a review, what it is and why it is awful. If you are like me 72 hours ago, you are asking what the fuck is stealthing? to which I offer this helpful Wikipedia definition. Non-consensual condom removal, or stealthing, is the practice of one sex partner covertly removing a condom when consent has only been given by the other sex partner for condom-protected, safer sex. Sounds great, right? Well, PSA, it's sexual assault. There I was getting busy Friday night with an attractive man following a second date. There I was sleeping, being cuddled all night by said man. There I was Saturday morning, getting busy again, flipped over and being entered from behind. There was a pause. Said man had a pretty big dick and I had just taken quite a pounding, so I remained as I was, recovering as it were, attempting to determine if the guy had in fact come when he entered me again. On we continued for maybe two minutes, at which time verbal evidence indicated that now he was coming. He pulled out and then I felt him wipe something warm and wet around my lower back. There was no splatter, so he came in his hand? I still don't know, but it doesn't matter. What does is the realization that I had just been fucked without a condom. For context, when we got busy the night before, condom. When we started getting busy that morning, condom. And then that same morning, following a brief pause, no condom. Still registering the event, I immediately asked, Did you go back inside me without a condom? To which he offhandedly replied, It came off, followed shortly by, Well, I took it off, and then... But I can assure you I am 100% STD-free, to which I replied, and what about pregnancy, to which he replied, oh, we don't do that here. Whatever the fuck that means, I still don't know that either. 
I'm embarrassed to say I was so dumbstruck I didn't know what else to say or do, so I instead got dressed and ready to go home. He was leaving too when we left together. He then kissed me goodbye, and he asked me to have dinner later that week, and I went along with it. I kissed him back. I said, sure. I went off into the day. And in my head the entire time was, what the fuck, over and over and over and over. There were red flags from the time we had hung out, but they were indicative of emotional baggage. There were more different red flags the second time we went out. That aforementioned Friday, this time indicative of arrogance and a woman-as-objects attitude. One of those assholes who fully turns to watch an attractive woman walk by. All of these things were registered, and all of these things were dismissed. During the second date, the invitation to go home with him was presented in a kind and gentlemanly fashion. Having just spent the last two hours watching him watch half a dozen other women, I was in the fuck-no camp. But then we stood up to leave and our bodies were close and all the instantaneous physical attraction that led to our going out together in the first place rushed through every vein in my body. There was some physical contact, some kissing, grazing of the neck and ears, and I got wet between my legs. I remember that I was curious about how big the dick of this man with a good face and the big boots was, and how I could want to have sex and engage with him and still not be interested in dating him. If you are judging this line of thinking right now, think about how this behavior and attitude is pretty much the de facto standard for hetero men. I thought about it, asking myself, what would a man do right now? And that was the thing that pushed my decision from fuck no to why not. It felt like an empowered decision at the time, acting on my physical desire without getting hung up on my feelings. 24 hours later, I didn't feel empowered. I felt assaulted. So what happens immediately after a stealthing incident, you might ask? Well, as a woman, my first thought should have been, I could be pregnant and I need to get the morning after pill. But instead, I ruminated and reached out to friends. I nurtured my building rage and committed to calling him on the phone after a strategic planning session with my bestie, typing up a list of talking points and arranging to live text the event over Facebook Messenger for guidance on the fly. It is important to note that it was clear the guy had no inkling what he had done was a problem, or illegal, and I'm fairly certain that given his looks, it's incredibly likely he's done this thing before, or worse, or similar, and no woman has ever confronted him. Having survived four other sexual assaults and shamefully not reporting any of the first three, I decided to fall on my sword and be the woman who does confront him. I had to be willing to say what you did was sexual assault and be prepared for any number of possible reactions. I had made the call Sunday evening and my voice shook, but I was explicit and calm and hit my talking points and expressed my side and he heard me. He listened. He apologized. He seemed extremely remorseful. It was a short call and I followed it up with another bestie check-in, a long shower and a cry. I followed that up with some time with other close friends. Sometime during that Sunday, I made arrangements to visit Planned Parenthood so I could get the morning after pill. According to the NYC.gov site, it's provided free of charge if you request it at a health center. I also arranged for an STD screening which required an appointment and went to sleep that night mentally prepared for those two things the following day. Somewhere along the way, the guy checked in with me, sending what felt to be an authentic and heartfelt text, apologizing again and stating that if there was anything he could do to let him know. The next day, I went downtown for my appointment. 5.15, there I was, having just cleared the metal detectors and three sets of doors to stand in an empty waiting room with a male security guard and two male desk workers. They were explaining the price of the emergency contraceptive and the difference in dosage options, and I was getting frustrated. I mentioned what I had read online and that I didn't have health insurance. 
The pill was going to cost me either $35 or $55, depending on which strength I took, and the screening was another $75. My frustration was growing, and I asked if I could be given a full price list of all the things because my assaulter had implied he would do anything, and I absolutely considered full reimbursement of whatever cost this shit show incurred to be included in that offer. Well, apparently, assault is a magic word there, and the other guys immediately snapped to attention, got on the phone, and whisked me away into the elevator to visit with a social worker. The frustrated exchange with the desk guys got me so worked up, I was crying by the time the whisking happened. Later in the social worker's office, my blubbering continued, but thankfully she had to leave the room to take a call from her sick mother, so I had a minute to get myself together. Social worker lady is the one who told me about PEP, or PEP which is the post-sex version of PREP, or PrEP, an HIV prevention drug. She also mentioned it cost $1,500, has awful side effects, and that I would need to take it every day for 30 days and then come back for three separate follow-up visits over the next six months. Overwhelmed, emotional, and uninsured, I sat there dumbfounded yet again. I explained my situation, and she explained that the financial counselor had already left for the day, but if I came back at 8 a.m. the next day... I could meet with this other woman, have all the costs waived, and get both the emergency contraceptive and the first dose of PEP all within the 72-hour window, which would end that same day at 11 a.m. I spent the next hour crying and walking and then record shopping to distract myself from more harmful behaviors. Later that night with friends, I broke down again. I got home around 3 a.m. and intended to stay awake since I'd have to get ready in just a few hours to leave in time to make my appointment. But in the end, I closed my eyes and got 60 minutes or so of broken sleep. My second appointment was even worse than the first. More than two hours long, I was shuffled from floor to floor, room to room, stranger to stranger. I got blood drawn, gave urine, had blood pressure checked, swapped my own vagina with some giant Q-tip, recounted my medical history, and described the incident to half a dozen strangers. After finally jumping through all the necessary hoops, I was given a stack of prescription info sheets, two bottles, and one blister pack of pills, and they sent me on my way without being charged. I go back for my first follow-up in the middle of February. There will be three next appointments, all told, wherein I get more blood work, give more urine, talk to more strangers, wait in more rooms. And in the meantime, I have to take a series of medication that will almost surely cause headaches, fatigue, vomiting, and diarrhea. So that's stealthing. Illegal, inconvenient, uncomfortable, and unsafe. It comes with trauma, difficult conversations, variable costs of time, care, and health, all while leaving you to suffer the consequences of someone else's selfish choice, i.e. not great. I recommend avoiding it at all costs. Pass it on. So that one was a little easier to read. Um, You know, yeah, the rape definitely hit a lot harder despite this one being the most recent. Um, but just to give you some follow-up, I wound up getting so sick from the pills that I did stop taking them, but it was only in concert with, um, you know, being in close contact with the guy. And, you know, he had been getting regularly tested for HIV, among other things, and had never tested positive. He got tested again, was negative. You know, I am aware of the, the six-month window. Um, but that combined with me not testing positive and just getting so sick from the pills, I just decided, you know, to, to stop about halfway through. Um, and I, I've been tested again since, and thankfully, you know, everything has been fine. 
um, some other details about this event that you may not be aware of. Um, so the guy, the stealther, as I refer to him, is also number 54. Now, I've not tried to hide this, and in fact, I, I linked to this article in one of his episodes. Um, and if you don't know who I'm talking about right now, um, so we do audio porn on this show, and some of the recordings are recordings that I've made myself, and uh, number 54 has been the most uh, frequent <laughs> appearance, the most frequent partner at least in terms of the audio porn. Um, and those recordings were all made after this event. And I bring this up because I think it's something that is especially taboo. You know, this idea of forgiving uh, an abuser and certainly continuing a sexual relationship with this person, you know, that's not not something I I talk about frequently because I am aware of uh, how it would be taken. And there, you know, once I had brought it to his attention, there was never a point from then on that I thought this person did this to intentionally hurt me. Instead, what I realized was this person does not realize what he did hurt me. You know, like he did not know until I told him. And I'm not excusing that. And I'm not saying, you know, especially in, in violent abuse cases, you know, if somebody was, well, I didn't know that I was hurting them or, you know, that's not what I was intending to do, but you violently rape somebody. Like that's a, that's a different thing. Um, and I guess it's like porn, like, you know, it when you see it kind of thing. I don't know how to, you know, in words describe like, this is the line, but my point is, I just realized that there was a gap in knowledge, right? And that there was something that he needed to be educated about. And, you know, I do feel that he really understood what I said to him. I do think that he changed his approach and his thinking afterwards. Um, but another thing that happened, you know, he was continuing to check in with me and, um, you know, like frequently just seeing, was there anything that he could do to make it up to me? And this all happened to be happening around the same time that I was getting ready to publish the first episode of this podcast. And so one day after him bringing this up, I finally responded, you know, yes, you know, what you can do for me is you can come up here and we can have a conversation about what happened. And I record it and that interview is used for an episode of the podcast. And he said yes. He didn't hesitate. Um, and he came up and we recorded. And I am sad to say that it is lost um, because of technical reasons. The setup of the mics and my um, my ignorance with audio editing, just it was a bad combination of getting a really shitty audio recording, me permanently fucking it up, um, you know, like doing some changes to it that I had forgotten were not reversible and, um, the audio just being inaudible at, at least half of it. And it just, I mean, I could try to splice together bits and pieces of it here and there. And I think about it every once in a while, but, um, it, what was more important to me was that he did it. You know, he was willing to, to come here 
and sit across from me and have me ask him very frank questions, you know, about like, how did you learn about consent? Did you ever learn about consent? Does consent even mean anything to you? Um, have you done this before? What were you thinking when you did it? Why did you do it? How do you feel about it now? And on and on and on. He answered every question. The point is he, he allowed himself to be ugly and to answer things honestly in a way that did not make him look very good. And um, I just, I had a lot of respect for that. And, you know, as with every interview that I do, I always end by asking the person if there's anything else that they want to talk about. And he asked me, well, given everything that's happened, would you ever consider sleeping with me again? And I answered yes, which was true. It was not something I was proud to say. It's not something I expected to say. But, you know, there was a very intense physical, chemical attraction, you know, that didn't disappear. It didn't vanish into thin air when this happened. It certainly pushed it away. <laughs> but, um, you know, we kept in contact and, and a few weeks later we, we did sleep together and he knew full well what was going on with the podcast and we did record it and I did use it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, who, who would have thought, you know, he wasn't a bad person. He was an ignorant person and I have encountered many many instances of this throughout the years, you know, people doing questionable things and it just being like, they just don't fucking know what they're doing is, is wrong. And it's unfortunate that there are so many gaps relating to consent in our education. Um, you know, the third piece that I mentioned, it's called on consent and bullying. It has a lot of information about, you know, like how we deal or actually do not deal with consent as a, as a country, you know, in America, that I think it's eight out of 50 states even mention it in sex education, which is appalling. Um, so it's not surprising that there are so many people out there, and it's not just men, but there's so many people out there that just, they don't know. They don't know how to bring it up. They don't know how to respond. Um, and, you know, likewise, people that feel like their consent is not... Uh, given, they don't know how to have the conversation. You know, this is one of those things that was a motivation for me to continue and start this show was that like people don't know these things because we're not talking about these things. So, you know, this is some uncomfortable stuff that I shared today, but I hope you got something out of it, some value. And I would also encourage you, I know how rampant uh, sexual abuse and assault is. So if there's anyone listening out there that you have a story, you have an experience that's painful, that you've never talked about, like, please reach out. You know, it doesn't have to be on the show, but if you, you just want to reach out to somebody who's been through the same thing um, and share it, I'd love to talk with you about it. I'd love for you to come on the show and talk about it. Again, everything is anonymous unless you don't want it to be. But I, I just think it's important that we just start really being honest about, about these events. Um, so anyway, that's the show for this week. Um, and I'll be back next week with more. Be well. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sex Communication. Please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. 
And if you'd like more information about the show, visit us online at sexcompod.com. That's S-E-X-C-O-M-P-O-D.com. If you'd like to be a part of the show, please email me at sexcompod at gmail.com. I am always looking for new sex audio and people to interview. It could be you.